Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for, for Boom. Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on Our Minds. All right, so I think we can get started, everybody. Um, I trust you can hear me. Um, yeah, so welcome. Thanks for joining us. We, we've been really pleased with the response we had to this uh, event. We, we had over 150 um, people register to attend the, the webinar and, and lots more actually inquired about whether it would be available afterwards um, to watch the recording um, because it is the middle of the night in some parts of the world and um, so I can confirm with you guys that yes it will be available we are recording it and it will be um, uploaded on the Brazilian Society of Biomechanics YouTube channel after this for you to play back the idea for this webinar came about through a Twitter conversation between uh, Philippe and myself uh, where we, we started chatting about the challenges that we were both uh, dealing with in terms of delivering remote biomechanics courses, um, in, especially in developing countries where we um, students don't always have access to good internet, internet connections and sometimes even electricity supply can be unreliable or uh, very expensive or in some areas that just doesn't exist. Um, but clearly some of the challenges we're facing must be global because we've uh, got people that have expressed interest in joining us today from all over the world, which is great. Uh, Philippe will speak on behalf of the Brazilian Society uh, at the end of our session, but I, I wanted to take this opportunity to introduce you all to the South African Society of Biomechanics. Um, for the past three or so years, we've been really working to, to strengthen our community in biomechanics in South Africa, and really only last month we officially launched this official association, so it's a pretty exciting time. And we, we're very grateful to have support from great industry partners already so we can kind of get off the ground. Uh, LifeMax is a, a local uh, distributor of a lot of biomechanics devices and as well as the you know, global leaders like Noraxon and Vicon um, have gotten behind us, which we're very grateful for. Um, the purpose of the society is to advance the field of biomechanics in South Africa, of course. Uh, but I think that what we've discussed and based our uh, our planning and our strategy around is making sure that this is really done through facilitating a strong community and a strong network um, interactions between people so that we can learn from each other and, and support one another to develop this, this field. Um, it's, uh, it's easy to feel a little bit isolated sometimes here at the southern tip of Africa. Um, so I think a, a strong local community will hopefully go a long way but also, I think one, one thing that this pandemic has taught us is how to network virtually. Um, and so thank you very, very much to the Brazilian Society of Biomechanics for already kind of partnering with us and, and all of you for joining today. That's about it from me. I'm going to hand over to my colleague, uh, Jumna Albertus. She's going to facilitate the rest of the session. Hi everyone, so I will be introducing our speakers today. We have the great pleasure of introducing Sarah Breen. 
Uh, Sarah is an associate professor of sport and exercise science at the Northern Michigan University in America. Sarah has been teaching biomechanics within a higher education setting for 12 years and teaches across undergraduate and graduate levels in face-to-face, -face, hybrid, and fully online formats. And Sarah's uh, talk today is entitled Active Learning in Online Classes, Getting in Sync with Your Students. So Sarah, we will hand this over to you. Awesome. Thank you, Yuna. Um, so I am going to be primarily talking to you through my video sharing here. So if you haven't already, please change your view to speaker view so you can see my wonderful face nice and big on your screen. Um, I will intermittently share my screen to show you some tools that I use as well. Um, but yeah, speaker view in, as a Zoom function on the top right of your window is definitely the best way for you to, to follow along with what I'm doing today. Um, the way that I am placing these uh, text pieces on my video is through Prezi video. Um, and yeah, so if you want to try that out, I find it quite a nice way to uh, hide the fact that I am teaching from my bedroom and that there is a bed right behind me. Um, so, uh, like Yumna indicated, I'm going to talk today about uh, synchronous online instruction. Um, and before I get into that, I just wanted to give you all a little bit of context, um, just my background. Um, so, as was mentioned, I've been teaching uh, in higher ed for over 10 years, uh, teaching biomechanics uh, primarily. Um, for eight of those years, I've been uh, the instructor of record or leading my own courses and modules. Um, and I've done that across three different countries. So I'm Irish, I did my PhD and did my teaching assistant uh, kind of teaching development work in Ireland. Uh, then my first full-time role as a professor was in the US. Uh, I moved back to the UK um, and worked there for four years and now I'm back across the Atlantic again and working in the US. So I've taught in three different countries, very, very different academic settings, different class sizes, um, and lots of different teaching environments. But the thing I guess that remains constant for me is the core pieces of my teaching philosophy. Um, and what students can expect when they come to my classes um, is to um, be part of a community, um, that community being them and their peers and me as a part of that. And I think that's really important to facilitate learning in my classroom um, and also to uh, encourage active learning. Um, and those things are especially challenging in an online setting, whether that's a planned online setting or an emergency online setting that most of us had to adapt to um, in the spring or winter of uh, this year. Um, I have had to do that a few times in my career due to different challenges and um, yeah, it's always been something uh, that I've leaned heavily on technology to kind of help me get through that and keep my core kind of principles alive or alive and kicking as we go through. So I'm going to share with you some active learning strategies that I use in my online teaching that I find really effective. I am not going to tell you everything you can do, but I'm going to share with you what works for me and my students, and hopefully uh, you will all find that useful. Um, like I mentioned, I'm going to focus on synchronous instruction. Uh, Philippe is going to talk later about asynchronous um, methods. Um, and from the outset, I'd like to kind of say that I don't think fully synchronous is the best way to lead a course. I think a combination of synchronous and asynchronous gives our students the flexibility they need, especially in a time like now when we're dealing with pandemic and so many other kind of constraints on for our students. 
So I am going to talk about three main strategies that I find work really well in my online classes. Um, currently um, at Northern, we are back in semester. I've just finished my second week of teaching in our fall semester. Um, and we are operating as a face-to-face -face campus. Um, but we have modified on-campus classes most frequently delivered, which means um, most of my students can't fit in my classroom socially distanced. So I need to allow at least half of them to join via Zoom um, or join remotely. So I use a lot of these techniques to allow the students who are joining remotely uh, in a synchronous fashion to engage in the learning content and feel like they're part of my classroom. Um, this, these will work as well if you're working fully synchronously and you don't have any students sitting in front of you. So the first one is a think, pair, share. It's an activity, of course, you can use in a traditional classroom, but I've figured out a few ways to get it to work nicely in an online environment. Essentially, the elements of think, pair, share is I prompt my students with a question. Uh, they have to think about it. Then they have to talk to their peers about that and report back or share their ideas or their answers with me and with the rest of the class. So the ways that I've found that works nicely in an online environment is using Zoom breakout rooms. Um, so essentially there is a function in Zoom if you are a host to allocate your students out into their own separate Zoom spaces. Um, this is really nice for students who are a little bit shy and don't like speaking in front of the entire class group. Um, it gives them a smaller, more comfortable space to talk about uh, different things. Uh, or whatever I prompt them on. Um, it also helps me establish that community. They have, uh, I keep those groups consistent. They get to know the faces and the names of the students they're working with. And it helps uh, alleviate some of that isolation that Helen talked about just a few seconds ago. In those breakout rooms, I typically leave them on their own. I've tried going in and joining the conversations, but I usually feel like I just interrupt what they're talking about and get in the way. Um, so I um, use different collaborative tools to allow them to bring their ideas together and for me to kind of monitor at a distance. One tool that's been really useful for that has been Google Documents or Google Docs. Um, so they'll have a Google Doc that they're typing their ideas into um, and I can look at that from my safe like at home uh, Zoom space um, and I can see what they're doing and when everyone comes back into the main Zoom space I can share those ideas and ask specific questions of each group. So Think, Pair, Share has been effective in my physical classroom and I've been able to adapt that online uh, using that Zoom breakout room function. Second thing I do a lot in my traditional face-to-face -face classroom that I've tried to now bring into my online space is asking lots of questions. I don't really let my students just sit there and listen all the time. I ask them lots of questions. I try to avoid yes, no questions and I get them thinking and answering and actively participating in my classes. Um, and I've had to come up with ways that I can allow my online students to engage in that process. Um, one way, if you want to stay in the safe Zoom space, if you don't want to bring in lots of other tools, there is a polling function in Zoom. Um, if you are, again, the host of the meeting, you can set up some polls ahead of time that you can ask your, quest ask your students questions and they can respond and you can share the results. Another one that I actually use more commonly uh, because it integrates into my PowerPoint slides is a tool called Poll Everywhere. Um, and I'm going to share my screen with you all briefly um, to show you that and to give you the opportunity to um, 
uh, I guess, see how that works and to actually respond to a poll everywhere question. So um, this is a service that I don't pay for. I'm not an advocate or a sponsor of Poll Everywhere, but I find it really useful in my classrooms. Um, and uh, the free version is perfect for me. Uh, it works internationally, so it can work in various countries. Um, obviously, internet access would be required to have the students actively engage um, with those questions. So on your screen right now, uh, you should see a poll everywhere question. Um, on the top of your screen, uh, you will see a website link that you can go to to respond to the poll. Um, so essentially what my students would do is if they're in class or at home, they're usually on their mobile device, on their mobile phone, uh, they will go to this address and they will um, have the question visible on their screen and they will just select an option. So. All of you that are here right now, um, if you want to try it out, you can go to the link that you'll see on the top of my screen. So pollev.com forward slash Sarah Breen 543. So what I'm sharing with you now on my screen is just the question. And what I'm going to see on the bottom right of my screen, if I have enough of you responding, is that result number is going to go up. So right now I've had two people respond to this question. So just a simple question, how often do you prompt your students with a question in class? Um, so I'll typically wait until I have enough respondents from my class to be able to talk about something of substance or substantial. And then I'll share the results with my students. So right now out of 36 of you, I have six responses. So uh, we're getting there. Um, we're down to five. Someone took it off. Oh, they put it back in. We're up to six. Okay. So generally, I'm not going to wait around too long to get all of you to respond. Um, but um, what we will see is we will be able to share then the results of that poll with the students. Um, what's nice about this is I can have one of these be a correct answer if this is a multiple choice kind of knowledge test question. Um, and I can just see what the kind of typical responses are across the classroom. If I go into this before everyone has responded, um, these will change and you can see that they're updating as we're going here. So majority of people here uh, ask questions every 15 minutes, some a little less time, some a little more time. And again, there's no right answer here. Everyone can do it at their own uh, interval preference. The literature points to 15 minutes being a good interval to keep students engaged with different types of activities. Okay, so back to me um, and um, what I'm going to talk about next is another way in which I engage my students in active learning and that is through brainstorming. So I can ask them to brainstorm uh, in my entire class group space or in their small breakout room space. So again, it can be a part of the think, pair, share activity, or it can be something that I want to prompt them about in class, check their knowledge on, things like that as well. So um, I'm gonna jump back and actually show you what a word cloud looks like in Poll Everywhere. Um, and um, just, I'm not gonna get you guys to engage in this one just out of the interest of time. So Helen can not be mad at me when I go over time. And um, I'm gonna show you what a word cloud uh, response would look like. So it works in the same way. I have a, a, a Poll Everywhere add-in in my PowerPoint uh, software that allows me to insert a slide into my presentation that's interactive, just like you all would have seen for the last example. 
This one here is just uh, showing an example of this question, how do you use poll everywhere? And you can see that people use it for lots of different functions in their classes, maybe asking questions, getting feedback, marking attendance, um, anything like that. There's lots of different functions for poll everywhere. But what we're looking at here is a word cloud function. And it's a great way to like check understanding, uh, how have a brainstorming process. Students can respond multiple times. And the uh, the words that are the biggest are the ones that have had the most responses. Another neat example that I found, oh, my screen sharing has stopped. Of course, there had to be a technical difficulty. It wouldn't be a, a proper Zoom session if I didn't have an issue, right? Um, so let's go back in here and do that again. Another neat one that I found, let's jump to that quickly, is this guy. So, um, you can actually, if they're responding on their uh, phone, they can use emojis to respond. And again, the most common emoji will appear the biggest. Um, and that's maybe a neat way to get students to engage in that as well. Okay, so I'm done sharing my screen, so you can just look at me from now on. Um, oh, I'm not done sharing my screen. I did want to show you one more thing. Um, so another neat way to um, get our students to brainstorm, we found really nice in our classes, is the whiteboard function, and it's a Zoom function. So when you go to share your screen, uh, you have the option of selecting a whiteboard instead of selecting your actual screen to share. So I'm gonna show you what that looks like. What you'd probably see right now is just a white screen, but what I have the function to do is to share with you how awful I am at drawing um, on a whiteboard when it's not a real whiteboard. Um, so this is collaborative, so if you have a breakout room, students can all write on the whiteboard. They can draw or they can uh, type. Um, they can use stamps if they really like what someone has said. They can use different stamps on there. They can also point to different things and that's labeled with their name. Um, so this is a nice tool to kind of engage in that brainstorming process across students. Another tool I found really nice for brainstorming and drawing is a tool called Nearpod. And I didn't have time to talk about it today, um, but if you've time and interest, I'd encourage you to, to look into that a little bit more. Okay, so um, I'm, what I'm gonna finish with is kind of, I guess, um, interestingly linked with what Helen opened with, um, and the concept of accessibility of our online teaching. Um, even here at Northern Michigan University where all of our students get a laptop and we have our own LTE network for our kind of uh, the community that we teach in and market, we still have students who have difficulty with internet access. And I wanted to share some things that I found really effective to support those students. So typically one thing that I will do is I'll always record my Zoom calls and I'll make them available as a downloadable video on Google Drive. So that means that the students can go to a place where they have good internet, like maybe a local library. Uh, they can download the video there and then take it home and watch it where they don't have to worry about internet access or video buffering. Um, the other thing that I do for those students is I give them a worksheet to do while they're watching their video or they're engaging in lecture. So sometimes they can't join a traditional Zoom meeting with video and sound. They might join using their phone. Um, and if that's the case, they won't have the poll everywhere options or those interactions. So I make a, a worksheet available for them that they can fill in, maybe fill in the blanks. They have the questions there that I might put on the poll. So it allows them to engage and follow along with the lecture in a similar way to those who are able to join effectively online. 
Final thing is thinking about students who have special needs and each of us in our own classes and courses will know what the needs of our students are. In my classes, I have students with varying requirements. Maybe they have different learning disabilities, visual or hearing impairments, and ways that I try and support those students, again, is providing a recording. And also a thing I found useful is placing that recording also on YouTube. Uh, YouTube has a really nice free subtitling service for any videos that you upload. Those subtitles can be in any language. Um, so it is a nice way for students who prefer to read when they're um, watching or learning or um, for those who might have hearing impairments to follow along uh, with lectures and that's been a nice way that I've found uh, to kind of support those students with those different accessibility needs. And I think my time is up. Uh, it's been uh, great to share what's worked for me with you all, and I look forward to answering any questions that you might have. Thanks so much, Zeta. It's so interesting. So we've got a, a couple of questions. One from Bell Sacco um, asking, does Mentimeter work in the same way as polling everywhere? Could you repeat that? Does what work in the same way? Does menti mentimeter oh, work? I, yeah, I haven't I haven't used that, so I'm not sure. Um, Poll everywhere works as an add-in, like I said in PowerPoint. They just go to a website that comes up on their phone. So I guess if that's the same as the other one, then maybe it's the same thing. Yeah. yeah. And then Helen's asked. Uh, you talked about using Google Docs as a collaborative tool. Are you getting students to work in Docs during their breakout sessions? Yeah, so I'll usually give each group their own Google Doc that they can like write in, type in, things like that, and then I can monitor that as they're going. So um, I'll usually share it, the link with them ahead of time um, and they'll work on that in, in that breakout room. Yeah. Great. And then Mark Kramer has asked, how do you manage everything between face-to-face -face and online teaching when, someone, when some students opt not to come to class but would rather work online? Yeah, we have that as a kind of a recurring issue or something that's starting to happen now where we're facilitating some of our students joining online. Um, and my philosophy is I would prefer them to join online and learn something as opposed to do nothing. Um, so uh, I'm, I guess, you know, I'm kind of a caring kind of person who maybe cares too much about my students. Um, so I'll usually just be quite flexible and give them the opportunity to join online if I think that's best for them. Like with everything going on in the world right now, I think flexibility and understanding for our students is pretty important. So I usually just give them the benefit of the doubt, allow them to join online and try and make that experience as kind of similar as possible to what my face-to-face -face students have. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. The flexibility is key. Then we've got one last question before we move on to the next speaker from Kat Daniels. Kat's asked, do you have any tips for how to manage synchronous classes, um, which would include labs, where some students are present in person and some are online? How do you make both groups feel part of a session and how do you manage the brainstorming and interactive discussions? Yeah, so what I've done so far is I group the online students together in their own group. And then my face-to-face -face students work in a group as well. Um, I find it really challenging to have people on Zoom and face-to-face -face at the same time. It takes an extremely large amount of brain power. Um, but what I, I, and I can't monitor the chat, for instance, while I'm teaching in person as well. So what I ask of my online students is that they unmute and speak if they have a question um, because my computer is connected to the room audio. 
Um, so the other thing I do is all of my students who are in my face-to-face -face classroom are on Zoom as well. They're muted and their audio on their computer is muted. So what that means is if, if they ask a question or they speak, the students online can hear them better. Because otherwise I'm relying on my microphone at the top of the room to have everyone here, which usually doesn't work very well. That's a good idea. Okay, I'm going to take one last one because we have to move on. Johan van Jedins asked, assessments and honesty are an issue. How do you deal with this? Yeah, so if we have our students fully remotely online, uh, we are giving them exams and we don't know for sure if they're using the book or not. Um, the way I, I guess, do it is I make my exams, like if they did have the book, um, or, or we're looking at their notes, then it would still be a challenge. So um, that's one way. The other thing that I do to avoid them working with their friend is uh, if I have questions or quiz or an exam on Educat, well, that's our Moodle system, um, I uh, rotate the questions. So they're coming from a pool of questions, so they won't all have the same question, rotate the answers. Um, yeah, it's, it's a trust system. Uh, obviously, there's lockdown browsers that we can use to limit the ability of them using other sources but my i guess outlook is likelihood is that they're probably going to look at their notes so make the exam in a way that it's testing other things besides their ability to just remember that one thing that they've written in their notes or it's in the book Andrew began research in biomechanics in 2010 as a postgraduate student and completed his phd on technical performance in rugby in 2016. He has been lecturing biomechanics in undergraduates since 2017 and continues to conduct research in exercise physiology and movement analysis. Andrew's talk is entitled Qualitative Movement Analysis Using Mobile Devices. So over to you. Um, so what I'm gonna have a look at is just a little bit of um, qualitative motion analysis. This is actually a task that I get my first year students to complete. Um, towards the end of their module, uh, once we, they can apply some of the knowledge that they already have, um, and then integrate some of the units that we have already conducted in our first year biomechanics course. So I do apologize if this is quite elementary, um, but our biomechanics that we present at UJ is at the first year level. Um, so it may seem hopefully um, very easy, and um, it hopefully will be a wonderful little talk that we can get through. So one of the things that we found at UJ's, particularly with our students, is that a high percentage of our students have mobile devices. Um, we did a quick survey um, prior, well, in fact, the first week of our hard lockdown, um, and it turns out that close to 90% of our students have access or have a mobile device um, that can record video and can view um, online data, um, and as well as obviously connect to the internet. Um, so one of the things that I thought of was instead of getting students to do what they normally do, which is just record everything, um, add filters, and then post it to the various social media websites, um, why not use that skill that they've developed um, through all their teenage years uh, to then try and apply some biomechanics? So we know that students are normally going to start with something quite elementary, applying filters, um, and then identifying various movements uh, in, in, in a motion or in a sporting sporting task and we can see that that can actually be progressed into further analysis such as your um, dart fish analysis and then even your um, kinematic analysis um, when the students progress throughout the system so the entire idea is to try and focus more on the left hand side of the slide uh, where we are able to work with the, the, the tools that the individuals already have um, and then just apply their knowledge that they would have learned in their first year biomechanics um, 
in, in this particular task. So what I'm going to present is actually just the task that is presented to the students. And then I will continue with a, an example that I have provided. Um, and this, this example I normally give to my students uh, just so that we can maintain a certain sense of quality um, across the board. Uh, so the students also are just following the, the right processes. We all know that with students, uh, you know, students won't attempt uh, any assignments if they don't have a rubric and if they don't have an example. Um, so it's normally the open wide process and a little spoon feed um, for the first couple of um, attempts. And then towards the end of the year, it's, it's welcome to the big bad world and they normally continue on their own. So these are the instructions that obviously I'm going to be giving to them. Um, I want them to record a movement. Uh, before COVID, uh, we would normally get the students to uh, record a movement or to demonstrate a movement in front of the class. Uh, that would be uh, whatever's in vogue at the moment. So for 2020, the plan was to do an Olympic movement because we were supposed to be having Olympics this year. Uh, so we would take something from the decathlon. Uh, they would have to either do a javelin throw, a discus, long jump, triple jump, high jump, um, hurdles, uh, starting phase of sprints, continuous uh, running phase of sprints, uh, and so on. So they would normally either demonstrate that movement for us or they would just record somebody participating um, in that action. And then the second part of the instructions would just be to analyze that movement. Um, and they have to focus specifically on a definition of the analysis. So are they going to be using a component or a composite approach? Uh, they need to define the skill. Is it open um, or closed skill? Is it going to be a discrete movement? Uh, is it going to be... Um, continuous or serial motion that's going to be described. And then very importantly, as we all know as biomechanists, um, the kinetic chain is this thing that we're all obsessed with. As they need to refer to the kinetic chain, normally give a definition and see how we can optimize that kinetic chain for performance um, or injury prevention. Then they would also just have to mention uh, something about balance and stability, the sensor of mass projections, um, how it can be maintained and optimized through the movements and then something about contraction types as well as the agonist muscles of the movement. Once they have then analyzed that in the video, they would just simply have to upload their analysis with an audio overlay um, onto our discussion board that we have in our online platform. And then we turn it into a, effectively a YouTube video where our students can then have a look at the video and then obviously comment on it. Now the comments are obviously going to be moderated. It's not going to turn into that deep, deep dark place uh, known as the YouTube comment section, um, but it is going to just be a place where students can comment um, on the various motions that have been analyzed um, and then the breakdown of the movements into its particular phases. We find that most of our discussion from our students occurs around the division of phases and how those phases have also just been uh, dissected and analyzed in a little bit more detail. So you'll see over there that the, the major outcome is just perform a comprehensive um, biomechanical analysis. And then very importantly is they have to integrate all of the knowledge that they've learned from the previous units. So up until this point, they would have already been taught the various approaches to uh, uh, kinematic analysis. Uh, they would have uh, had inf information about the skill types, the kinetic chain, uh, balance and stability, and very importantly, the musculoskeletal influences. So they would have had all of that information already. Um, at this stage, what they need to do is they need to just analyze the motion using all of that information uh, that they have already received. So this is just um, an example that I'm going to play through. Uh, which, which I did uh, a couple of months ago uh, to prepare my students for their, their, their little course. So effectively what they'll do is they're just gonna record the motion. Um, 
I, I've taken a YouTube clip and then just um, done some work on that. But our students are normally always going to just analyze their own motion uh, when they can record either a classmate or a friend just completing the movement. And then they'll break it down in simple overlays um, using, using the various apps that they all have access to. So if we just play through this video, we'll be able to see that I've taken a very good javelin attempt. We break it down into a run-up phase, an approach phase, um, pull-back, a throw phase, and then obviously the follow-through. So what they would, the students would be expected to do is as we are speaking through it, they'll be saying, okay, the individual is going to be running up. Um, if we only look at the upper body aspect of the individual, so the shoulder blades, the shoulder girdle, as well as the arms, uh, those remain quite stationary during the movement. Um, we remember that this is going to be at a first year level, so the level, the depth of analysis is going to be quite shallow. Um, then as the run-up continues, we then go into the approach phase where we can get the pullback of the, um, of the uh, shoulder girdle and the shoulder blade as they then load up those muscles. Uh, the individual then goes into the throwing sequence where we can get the foot plant and we can break it down into those various phases. Um, and they'll talk about how the, the shoulder blade is then going to go through the various uh, range of motion uh, and then identify any of the agonist and antagonist muscles. So some of the things that we would be looking at um, is just going to be how they've broken the phases down of the movement and then how they're going to be analyzing what's happening at each stage of that analysis. Um, very importantly, we, we need to especially for the musculoskeletal side, uh, they need to identify the um, movements that are occurring along the various planes, uh, flexion, extension, and, and so on. Um, and then also very important is to identify the agonist muscles and specifically mention something about the stretch shortening cycle. So that's something that at first year level, we really stress with our students um, is just the storage as well as the recoil of um, potential elastic energy uh, from the various muscle tissues. So once that has been uploaded um, to our online discussion, uh, we will then moderate everything that occurs within that discussion board, um, make sure that students are just being polite um, as well as constructive in, in the, the feedback they're giving to one another. And we do assign marks to a couple of the discussion points that have to be uploaded online. Um, the students particularly like these types of things um, because I think it's, it gives them a little outlet not only to, to analyze a sporting thing that they enjoy, um, but then also just to give a little bit of feedback to one another in, in the um, movements that they have then uh, reported. From an instructor's point of view, uh, what we do is we apply just a simple rubric. Um, the rubric is always going to be available to the students and we can simply then just go across the various columns and assign the marks as, as have been defined. Uh, so the rubric that I'm just showing here is quite, um, quite simplified. Uh, we do add a little bit more complexities depending on um, how much information we require from the students. And then obviously as, as the years progress uh, from first year onwards, we, we become a little bit, uh, we go into a little bit more detail with the various components that we are looking for. So as you can see from the rubric, we can uh, assign various marks to the, the various uh, out, outputs that the students have given. Um, and then once they have their final mark, then we normally just get the, the presentation to, to have so many likes on the discussion board. Um, and we really try and make it almost like a, a YouTube type environment uh, where we, we uh, try and promote individuals to, to once again, you know, promote their own little videos. Um, what we have noticed is a lot of our students not only upload things like this just to the discussion board, um, but a lot of our students as well put, put, put these types of videos onto things like Instagram, um, get, get a little social brag out there. 
um, which, which I think is, is, is actually quite amazing uh, that they'd be quite proud of their work to actually do something like that. So that's, that's pretty much just our approach. We've moved now to our online platform. Um, previously, what we just used to do is the individuals would um, present this in front of the class, um, but we normally just have a, a very nice live Skype session um, or a collaborate session as we have at, at UJ. Uh, where the students can then just share their presentations uh, live if they want to. Alternatively, we can just play their, um, uh, their videos as they have uploaded. So that's pretty much just uh, summarizes my little uh, presentation of our task that we give to our students. Um, I do hope that everybody uh, was listening and enjoyed it. So this is the one thing about our online system is we, we never really know who's listening. Um, so I do thank you all, all for joining um, and, and hopefully we'll enjoy the talks that follow. Thanks so much, Andrew. There's one question for you uh, from Mark Kramer. Do you make any? Do you make use of any specific mobile apps? Example, Tidal. And does the operating system matter much? Example, Android versus um, EOS. Uh, no, so we don't. We don't specify any um, app. I do mention that that Huddle is a free. Um, app that they can use if they want to go into a little bit more, more depth as so if they want to then go uh, with a different biomechanical approach and then actually get the actual angles um, then huddle is a, a free tool that they can use um, if they want to spend a couple of us dollars they can also buy the um, dartfish mobile um, but obviously i just want students to, to break everything down into the phases and not really go into that depth of analysis uh, when it comes to the operating system uh, if you're using apple or android it really doesn't matter um, in fact, most of the phones and mobile devices have such good camera qualities these days um, that it would put most broadcasters to shame. Um, so I think from that point of view, it really doesn't matter what they're using. Great. Thanks so much, Andrew. Can we move on to our next speaker? And so I've got the great pleasure of introducing you to um, Mark Kramer. Mark is a senior lecturer within the Physical Activity, Sport and Recreation Unit at Northwest University in South Africa. His research tends to focus on the inter intersection between biomechanics and exercise physiology in the domains of both sports science and biokinetics. And Mark's talk is entitled Using Open, so open Source Software for Quantitative Kinematic Analysis. So over to you, Mark. Thank you, Yumna. I really appreciate the introduction. Uh, let me just figure out how to share the screen quickly. Okay, perfect. Um, okay, so I think my talk is going to dovetail quite nicely with the video that you guys just saw. So in a South African context, we've got a variety of students with a variety of mathematical and physics abilities, uh, some more, some less. So in order to cater for students of all levels of, of backgrounds, uh, we give them quite a lot of support material. Uh, and that includes things like textbooks, quite detailed lab manuals that give them sample problems to work through, as well as solutions uh, to those types of problems, research articles, various practicals, tests at regular intervals, uh, quite a detailed course guide that tells them exactly what they need to read and prepare for um, in their lecture content um, as, as they get exposure to some of the theoretical background. And then a whole bunch of instructional support videos to allow st uh, students to, to cover some of the content uh, at their own pace. What also complicates things a little bit for us is the fact that we have students in our program that have a variety of backgrounds uh, or specializations. So we have biokineticists that focus a little bit more on rehabilitation 
and sports scientists that tend to focus more on performance enhancement. So our lecture Mark, content at least, yes. Sorry, just to stop you, you in your, your, um, you in your presentation view, so we can see your next slide and your notes, if you can go into. Um, so like I was saying, we have biokineticists and sports scientists. So to try and cover that content for, for both of them, we, we have a middle ground between performance and injury so that we speak to both, uh, both sets of students. Now, traditionally, we have a lecture classroom environment where we cover the content. But since 2016, we were forced to go online. There were quite a few student protests throughout the country. And luckily, this happened because of the fact that it has prepared us uh, much better for, for what happens in 2020. Um, to make the online format a lot more successful, especially when it comes to delivering practical work, uh, students often require access to other computers, laptops, or smartphones, uh, flash drive for us to distribute uh, the content, as well as freely available software. So in the previous video, you guys saw the Kenovia, for example, and, and Tracker. Um, I'm going to add to that by showing some uh, simulation software that we created in, in Excel. So the follow-up question to that usually is, do students require internet in order to do these types of practical assignments? And we've tried to design it in such a way that access to the internet is not a prerequisite because internet in South Africa is often quite expensive. And so students only have limited resources or limited access to internet. So one of the ones uh, that I want to just cover first is the tracker video analysis and modeling tool. Uh, it was mentioned in the previous video, but uh, they didn't go into too much detail. The way in which we set up um, practicals using this type of a freely available tool, especially for video analysis, we have one of two options. Either we pre-record the data ourselves, um, which is obviously quite labor intensive. There's a lot of thinking that has to go into the video setup, as you saw in the, in the previous video. The alternative is that students can use their own smartphones uh, in order to capture the video. The video. In either or option, uh, we provide a lot of support documents and instructional videos for students to show them exactly how to set everything up. So essentially the video that you guys just saw, we give that kind of material to the students. Again, we distribute it via flash drive. So all of the content is saved in the flash drive. We distribute it to students who usually work in group for these assignments. Um, and that means that we have, uh, say, 20 or 30 flash drives that we then distribute to the students to give them the content that they need. That then goes on to data analysis. So how do they derive useful information once the videos, uh, once the videos have been digitized? And again, there we provide a lot of support documentation and instructional videos, as well as manuals that guide students through how to assess and analyze graphs, how to interpret the data, how to extract useful data, and then use that information ultimately to write a report on that analysis. And the complexity of the analysis can scale up or scale down. So we lecture uh, to students from second year all the way to honors. Um, so that the level of difficulty tends to scale up and ramp up quite quickly. Uh, but again, the support material is there. The only online portion that is required is the submission of the assignment at the end. Uh, so that's the only time that a student would need to access the internet and then uh, submit the assignment electronically uh, so that it can be graded. So some of the positives of using this type of um, an approach is that there's a really good flexibility. So there's many types of movements that can be analyzed. There's loads of applications. So the students would have learned all of the theoretical components before, and then they can actually see how the theory transpires into something that they can actually tangibly measure. It also exposes students to a variety of calculations and the real life application of some of those calculations. 
in theory, it often becomes quite abstract, but once I actually see it in, in action, um, it tends to make sense for a lot of them quite quickly. And obviously the great bonus is that it's freely available. Uh, what's also really nice with the tracker uh, software is that it can be downloaded on a flash drive and distributed. So students don't have to download it um, via the internet at home. If you put it on a flash drive, you give it to them, they can just use it straight away from the flash drive, which is really great. Some of the less positive aspects is it's usually limited to only kinematic analyses, although you can go the kinetic route. Um, it just depends on what you know as the, as the lecturer and what you can essentially unpack uh, using this type of a software. And often it's also just limited to two-dimensional analysis as we saw previously. So we've created some simulations for, for our students uh, just using Excel. I'll show you in the next slide exactly what that looks like. Essentially, the setup is exactly the same. So we can either pre-record videos or have students record their own videos with the instructions that need to be followed. Um, the key here is then the digitization process of the video would happen within the simulation software. Again, there's data that needs to be analyzed, graphs that need to be interpreted, a report that needs to be written up, and the submission that needs to be done online. What's really nice with Excel is uh, everyone has access to Excel. That's freely available. Um, so once they have access to the template, uh, they can go ahead with the digitization of the videos and then start to unpack it from there. The positives of this type of an approach, again, is it has loads of application. So again, you can unpack any number of movements and really get into depth um, with the biomechanical applications of, of the theory and seeing it in action. It tends to build really good intuition. So like I said, in the lecture environment, uh, students often get bogged down with, with the theory, but to really see um, how some of the graphs that they see in textbooks tend to apply in the real life situation once they actually assess and analyze the movement is really useful. Again, it exposes students to graphical analyses. And in this case, because of how we digitize everything, um, there's great opportunity for some, kine some kinetics uh, in the analysis. Uh, some of the less positive aspect is there's a little bit less flexibility. So you have to create a template essentially for each movement that you, that you want to digitize. Um, so the number of movements that you can analyze is then limited to the number of templates that you have created. So we've got stuff for running, for jumping, um, and, and so on, and, and rowing, as you can see in, in, in the picture. Um, but again, how many templates you have available is, is completely up to you. It's typically limited, to, limited also to slower movements because the digitization process can be quite labor intensive. We don't want to you know, overburden students with, with something that's quite laborious. Um, the point of a, of a simulation is really to build intuition. So slower movements that happen in short periods of time are, are, are plenty. And again, it's limited to two-dimensional motion. So just to show you what that looks like, uh, essentially. Uh, so on the screen, um, you have a student that has digitized a standing broad jump. So you can see here that the video has been digitized into the relevant sections. They can go through it on a frame-by-frame -frame basis. Uh, the, the simulation would have recreated the center of mass. And then in the middle graphs, the students can unpack any number of variables. So if they want to measure range of motion of the shoulder, the elbow, of the hip or the knee. Uh, they want to look at angular velocity or angular acceleration, uh, anything related to the center of mass, ground reaction forces, so on and so forth. Again, they can play around with it in their own time and they can really unpack that. So we, we just provide guided uh, learning opportunities and the information that they then get from that is, is based on you know, their ability to extract the data from, from the simulation. What's also really great that we try and do is to 
speak to both sets of students in the class. So irrespective of what their specialization tends to be, when it comes to sports scientists, we try to do something that's a little bit more performance-based. And when it comes to the biokineticists, we try and do something that's a little bit more clinical. Uh, both of these tend to run at the same time. Uh, so it's a little bit more labor-intensive for the lecturer, but it allows really good opportunities for students to engage in their respective disciplines. So just some examples uh, using either the tracker or the simulation side of things that we've done with sports scientists includes stuff like sprint starts where they look at joint kinematics over the first few steps. Uh, we've looked at water polo where we uh, investigate things like the shoulder rotation angles uh, as well as water clearance, how high they come up um, and look at the differences between fatigue and non-fatigue in, in terms of goal shooting accuracy. Uh, modeling something like the 40 meter sprint velocity um, gives students plenty of opportunity to practice some of those principles. From the more clinical side of things, uh, some, some aspects that we tend to look at are effects of joint position on rotation velocity, range of motion and path length, uh, effect of throwing mass on, on shoulder rotation. So if, if, if an individual has different uh, loaded balls, for example, how does it affect the, the shoulder rotation? Things like external knee um, or hip torque, what are the effects of that? Or how is that different between front and, and back squats? So again, really uh, key biomechanical aspects, but just applied slightly differently depending on the context. So the biggest challenge often in the, in the remote format is to really find novel ways to apply the theory uh, in, in practical settings. So another aspect that we've done is through uh, the creation of experiential learning mini assignments. So there's so much theoretical content in the semester that the students have to cover. So to keep them engaged in the biomechanical aspects, but from a practical side of things, uh, these mini assignments are something that we release on a, on a week by week basis. And it's simple things. It's, you know, assess um, how long it takes you to cover a given distance, how fast on average were you running over that distance, how high can you jump, or what are some of the knee joint angles as you, as you land from a jump and so on and so forth. So stuff that's simple, simple enough to do in your own, in the privacy of your own home um, with simple technologies, but just to continuously keep you engaged in, in some of the, the, the theoretical content, but in a more applied setting. What then happens with these mini assignments is on a weekly basis, students would have to log that on something like Google Sheets, as you've heard it before. The only thing that we've done to make it different is that we don't count it for marks. So the application there, uh, or there's a limitation there sometimes in terms of student engagement, because as soon as it's not for marks, uh, we often find that students don't necessarily do it. But it's just, again, for those students that want the experiential learning side of things. So the question then often is, is biomechanics just video analysis and simulation? The answer to that is definitely not. There's lots of different things that they can do. I think in most university environments, we have access to a lot of technology. So there's things like freely available um, Excel templates where uh, students can um, assess and analyze force velocity profiles, for example, of resisted jumping, force velocity power profiles of sprinting, uh, calculations of jump height just using simple applications, foot scan data where they investigate maybe wearing shoes or going barefoot or walking and running. Uh, again, it just depends on what you have available and, and the guided learning that you expose students to. In a nutshell, that's it from my side. Thank you very much. If you have any questions or queries, my contact details are also available in the bottom right hand corner of the screen. So I'd be more than happy to answer those questions. So I've got the great pleasure of introducing uh, Philippe Carpus. Uh, he is a professor at the Federal University of Pampa in Brazil. 
South America, he's the South American um, representative in the Executive Council of the International Society of Biomechanics. His research group investigates the production and regulation of movements and application of this information to training and rehabilitation. COP is also dedicates to help different groups across the world to establish biomechanics research groups, such as our one in South Africa, and then the organization of new biomechanics societies in EDC. So thank you very much, Philippe, uh, and over to you. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Um, well, good, great pleasure to talk about uh, this topic here today, considering that we are maybe the first time that we are all over the world in the very similar condition regarding education. And there are so many particular uh, characteristics from our places that you you need to take in account when organize our lectures. And today I will talk a little bit about our experience um, aiding asynchronous activities to the remote learning. And we hope that uh, soon we can go back to the regular classes. Uh, I don't know what you think, but in my case, I'm missing so much the person-to-person -person activities, including the lectures. You try to do the best at uh, what you can uh, in this condition. So please, 2020, hold on for a little. And well, I teach biomechanics for physical education and physiotherapy students. The regular classes, it's a 45 hours course over 17 weeks. So we have three hours per week uh, in classes including 25 for physiotherapy uh, course and 50 students for physical education. In the regular course, I mean the face-to-face, the, the, -face, the, the normal, uh, uh, normal uh, class. I have four main activities in the lectures that the face-to-face -face classes, the lab activities, the, a research project, and an uh, educational game. And for the remote uh, course, we, we are adapting the, the activity in, four, in five blocks. The first one we call on-demand lectures, that's uh, an asynchronous uh, activity, online live meetings, and then you have the homemade experiments, research project, and the biome biomechanics Olympic Games. These three last activities combine sometimes synchronous and asynchronous activities. I will quickly show each one of these activities. So the first one, the on-demand lectures. We have a website. Well, we, we, all, we all know that most of the universities have resource to, to online uh, teaching, like the model system, the Google suite um, options. But I don't know, sometimes I just like to create something that I can truly manage and change, not depending on someone else. So we create a Google site where you put all information for the lectures and the on-demand videos for the lectures are available on our YouTube channel. Uh, we call the Neuromac TV. So if you want to take a look later. And the students can found um, 20 classes that we call introductory classes to the biomechanics course. 
and the videos are available uh, in the YouTube. But for the students, uh, I can also make the videos available offline. We, well, it was mentioned before about the, the, the access to the internet. Sometimes it's just easier to the students to download all the material and they can watch uh, as the, uh, when they want at home, for example. So this is the case here for, for the on-demand. And then you have the online, the online live meetings that include public uh, sessions to discuss some general topics related to the biomechanics uh, course. And we do this public because we, we consider that one, one interesting thing of the remote learning is that we are sharing much more than before. So sometimes you can invite a colleague to discuss, to participate in your class, to teach something to the students as well. And the private sessions, including those tools already mentioned in this event, the breakthrough, breakthrough rooms, the pools, whiteboard, and then you can have a more close uh, contact with the students. There's a lot of different options to, to use for these uh, online live sessions. In our university, we have the Google Suite uh, add-on, so you can use the Google Meet and all the related uh, tools. But I also like to use the Zoom, um, um, the Zoom room, let's say, to, to the class. The big challenge, in my opinion here, is to promote the engagement of the students and also some kind of equality on the access to the information, but also in the, uh, for the understanding, because it's very hard to get the feedback from the students when you cannot see the faces and talk close uh, to them. So I consider that this remote learning condition here, it's a kind of emergency condition. I'm not planning to replace any, other, any of the face-to-face -face activities. And I think, yes, the remote activity can help, can be a complementary tool, but we cannot just normalize uh, this for our classes. I have so many difficulties to, 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 to do that. So maybe I, I think some of you also have this similar impression. And then the block of combination of asynchronous and synchronous activities, the homemade experiments, research projects, and the educational games. So this, this educational game combining all these activities emerged from the difficulty of the students to follow the topics of the lectures. So what do most students expect when they come to the biomechanics class? Sometimes they just expect a lot of mathematics and data and graphs and, well, you know quite well. But also they have a hope for hands-on. In my case, I teach biomechanics for students from the first year in the physiotherapy school. And they, they used to, to tell me that when they start a biomechanics course, the first moment they feel that they will work with the physiotherapy concept. I mean, they will touch someone, they will measure, they will get, get data, they will discuss some clinical case or something like that. And now we don't have this. We don't have, we cannot do these activities in the lab. These images and videos are from our uh, 
classes uh, from the past years. So it's a biomechanics lab. You do real-time measurements. We calculate some variables, reduce those concepts. But it's very hard to, to do this uh, remote because it's not easy to, to do a homemade experiment. We have some good tools already mentioned in this, in the, in this event. They can do some calculations at home. They can, they can compare to data from one scientific paper or something like that. You can use uh, a paper describing the kinematics of the squat, and then you can use the, the mobile applications and Kinovea and others, other applications to, to do the measurements in some, someone from his own family, and then he can compare the data. But it's, it's not the same because you don't share with the other students. And sometimes in the class, there's a lot of learning when students start to, start to discuss together. And in the remote learning, this is more difficult. <clears throat> but it happens also in the face-to-face -face class, these difficulties. So nine years ago, we start to combine the synchronous and synchronous activities to improve the participation of the students in the classroom and also to improve the understanding about the applications of biomechanics and also to promote uh, abilities and skills to communicate, to share knowledge, to, 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 popular, to promote science popularization. And the students give us very good feedback. They used to say that the, this kind of activity I describe helps to motivate out of the class study and also interaction between the students and, and also to find additional material to, to, to study at home. So we described this method in a paper we published a couple of years ago. And basically, we organized the class in small teams and they have specific tasks to perform during the semester, during the course. You can, well, you can, we can change the tasks, we can adapt, we can reduce the number, we can increase the number of the tasks, but each one has a specific purpose that include homemade experiments, the development of a research project, write a, a research project, and by write a, pro, a research project, I mean learn a little bit about how to construct an, a research question and how to propose an, a hypothesis and how to define how to test this hypothesis. Of course, we cannot include now the activities they develop in the community because one of the tasks is to go out of the university and tell people about biomechanics. So they go to public places, they talk about impact on running, they, they talk about the influence of movement speed on force production, they talk about uh, risks of falls in elderly. We cannot do this uh, anymore. We can adapt, but people, the kind of people they reach when they go out of the university is not the kind of people that are online looking for videos or something like that. So the, the, the public will be totally different. Then you have to adapt. But other options, other activities can keep going. 
like um, session for creative thinking. The, we we do some educational games that you do in the classroom. So now we can we can do this online using uh, tools like those presented by Sarah. Uh, we can do some short uh, journal clubs with the students. We can also do some mentoring sessions to help them in the construction of the research project. And we can also keep them motivated to develop some activities like one of our more, how can I say, it's a very nice activity. They have to create some artistic manifestation of biomechanics. It can be a music, it can be a, a pint, it can be a, a, a sculpture, I don't know what. It can be anything they want to show how a biomechanics concept can be applied in daily life. So this kind of activities we still can do during the remote learning because you do this during the regular face-to-face -face classes. They work out of the university. They hope they, hope they work at they, their homes to develop these activities. And a good thing is that sometimes people, people is really, really uh, um, worried about what is the impact of aiding these asynchronous activities to learning. But so far what we found, including a lot of asynchronous activities to the regular classes, is that it is not bad for the, for the learning. I mean, they you have good um, outcomes in the exams. Um, we got a better, how can I say, a better um, performance of the, the students in the read, writing exams. Well, it's not bad for them. It's not commit their, their, their um, learning by, adding, by including these asynchronous activities to the, to the class. To the, to, the, to the course, sorry. And in the end of the day, we can select some of, some of these activities to keep going during the, the pandemic period. So here I just keep some of the images that we still can do. I mean, we can, we can work creating this kind of uh, conceptual maps or the in activities of creative thinking. They still can create videos and online material to, 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 to show uh, content of biomechanics. They, they can work together because asynchronous means not with the teacher face-to-face, -face, even by the webcam, but they can go together online using other tools. So they can use Google Meet or other tools they want to talk and to discuss the, the, the problems that we mentioned in the class and how to develop uh, the solutions. I'm not, I will not talk about uh, evaluation here, but there is a, um, a method to evaluate the, the team work. And to, 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 to finish my presentation, I would just remember that this three last activities that we propose, organizing the students and the small teams working together, having to present not only papers or data for the, the, the other colleagues, but also discuss 
questions, participate in live sessions. They are asynchronous activities. They can be used during this pandemic period, but we also consider this that this kind of approach can be successful successfully implemented for a regular face-to-face -face classes. And particular for the course that I, I teach 45 hours, it's, it's not enough to show the main topics of biomechanics. So if you engage them to keep working with the biomechanics, to keep studying biomechanics topics outside of the class in additional times, so we kind of increase the time of exposition of these students to the, to the biomechanics concepts. It's not easy to, to, to run this educational project by yourself, I mean alone. So I used to involve students from our research lab as well. At least two students are always helping with the development of the activities over the course. And they really like, they really want to participate. I mean, I'm not, I know you have to. I just ask them and they, they like to, to be involved. So if you want to include more asynchronous activities to your classes, maybe having some assistant, I don't know, if, depending on, what, on where you are and your university, how it works, but here we can have some students to support the classes so they can help. And sometimes they, they can do very well with these online tools and create a material for the students and also communicate it with the students. So just to register the thank you for the students helping in this um, challenge. And I just invite everyone to also visit the, the Brazilian Biomechanics uh, Society website it's a great pleasure to represent the society here today. And well, thank you for your attention. I, I, I hope the video and sound was okay. Thank you. Thanks, Philippe. Uh, it went all well. So uh, we have any questions for, for Philippe? Got some comments on the side, but it's got to do, Johan's asking about how to get around um, the face-to-face. -face. It's very hard to, to teach when you, when you're not face-to-face -face. and then Sera responded saying that you can um, use an iPad and use a pen tool on there to make a whiteboard easier. And also another option is using a document reader or even pointing a webcam onto a piece of paper to write on. And um, then Johan also asked, Philippe, at what level do you implement this approach? For in the physiotherapy school, they are first year students. So they, they are just starting the course. So in Brazil, physiotherapy course have five years. So they are on five, first year. And the physical education, they are being the beginning of the second year. Okay. So they're quite early on in the, in the degree. Is there any other questions? Thanks, Dr. Mohamed, for, for all of your comments and your, your great feedback. Um, anything else? All right. So we're not so bad on time. Just yeah. slightly eight, eight minutes over. Not bad at all. So thank you again, once again, to all of our speakers. Absolutely been helpful. 
And I hope we can all use one or two of these or even all of them to apply in our own teaching. And then Philippe, I'll uh, put it back onto you to, to say the, the farewells and goodbyes. Uh, well, there, I, I just got one question here about how, how much uh, calculation I teach for the students. Uh, not much. And for the remote learning, I'm not going so deep in the calculations because I'm afraid of losing the students. This is the truth. For the face-to-face -face classes, I go a little bit deeper in two-dimensional kinematics, for example and then explain some calculation with more details. But for the remote learning, by fear of losing the students, I will keep it easy for the calculations. I don't know if you'll be right or not. Let's see. Thanks for listening to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa. And I'm Hannah. And you can follow Biomechanics on Our Minds on Twitter at BiomechanicsOOM. Or you can email us if you have any research fails or just anything you'd like to share or like you'd, you'd like to hear on Boom at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com. Thank you to Peter Washington for making the music to our podcast. We love all the tracks. They're so great. And a big thank you to the International Society of Biomechanics for sponsoring us and spreading the Boom love. Mm -hmm.